following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once again from 1 Samuel, and just continue today with thoughts of David's career and what we can learn from it, and then next week we'll turn to what you would probably consider more seasonal things. But uh, first of all, I'm going to just backtrack a little bit, 1 Samuel 16, two verses there, and then I'll jump forward into chapter 18, and then something very quick from Matthew chapter 12. First of all, reminding you of David and his experience of the Holy Spirit, which we read about in chapter 16, when Samuel selected him as king. We think it was a private ceremony that the public didn't, wasn't aware of until later. We read 16.13 of 1 Samuel. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Further, same basic theme, 1 Samuel chapter 18, picking up, I have to get to the right place here, verse 6. This is after the battle with the Philistines and Goliath. As they were returning home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. The saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and He hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And David went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And then a passage that might seem odd to you, but I think you will see the relation. Matthew 12, a short parable from Jesus. Jesus said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through 
waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I'm continuing to suggest to you this morning that we cannot learn the best lessons God has for us in the life of his servant, David, unless we see as the dark antitype of David the person of King Saul. I've already spoken of him some, and he will occur yet again, but today we want to dwell on him a little bit more. We remember that Saul and David both began in lowly families, both tapped in some way through the same prophet, Samuel, who said that these were the ones to be selected, Saul to be the prototype of a king that would make Israel like everybody else. That's what they wanted. David to make them a people separated unto God. But both men rose to fame with a considerable amount of ability. Both were intelligent, good leaders, the good warriors. But one, David, grew in grace and with intimacy with God. Yes, sinful, but nevertheless Closer and closer to God he grew. But the other, Saul, lived a tragic kind of decline that eventually appeared to verge almost upon madness. These two men came to entirely opposite spiritual fates. And we need to understand some of the why behind that. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, there's the dealing with the theme of what we might describe as a false believer, someone who has a superficial association with matters of faith, who nevertheless does not possess a true heart rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 6, 4 speaks of it, saying that there can be someone who is once enlightened by gospel faith and even taste of the Holy Spirit, very interesting verbs there, and yet not be eternally converted. Hebrews 10.29 further describes a tragedy of someone who basically dabbles in a profession of faith or moves in association with people of faith who later, as the writer says, tramples underfoot the Son of God. That person the Bible would have us understand, is not a regenerate person, never was. It's not a case of losing salvation. You did not possess it, even though you moved in some degree of familiarity with what it is. We believe Saul is the Old Testament version of that false believer that's described in the New Testament, someone who looked like he was being used of God, who even tasted and sampled gifts of the Spirit of God who nevertheless was not a regenerate child of God to all appearances. Now, first of all, let me just mention David again as a man in whom God's Spirit fully dwelt this morning. I retraced for you that verse 16, 13 of 1 Samuel that says so dramatically, rather dramatically in the statement of our particular English translation, that the Spirit of God 
rushed upon David, almost a forceful overtaking of David by the Holy Spirit. And we would say that was the great motive power from that time on by which the Spirit accomplished many things in David. It looked like this was a man with the Midas touch, a man who just couldn't do anything wrong, hardly. Carol and I just had the TV on the other day and probably should have turned it off because I think we were both sort of having a Saturday afternoon nap, but we both kind of woke up to realize this program was on called A Football Life, and it was the life of Roger Staubach, former quarterback of a team that they used to say was America's team. I never understood that because everybody knows America's team is the Buffalo Bills, but (laughs) all right. Um, Well, we both kind of woke up and we watched this and we commented on it. And I had known something, probably knew a little more than Carol did about Roger Staubach, but it was so interesting to watch the the life of this successful man who had graduated from Annapolis, had been a naval officer, I believe he won the Heisman Trophy, quarterback, the premier football team, won a couple of Super Bowls. But even more than that, the, the, the story went on to spin more of his biography and, and just the good that he had done with a thriving business that earned millions of dollars, how he helped former teammates and, and just was a, regarded as a benefactor and an upright man. It seemed like Staubach could do no wrong. Now, he wasn't perfect, of course, but a fine man, an outstanding man. Everything it touched, he, he touched, it seemed, shined with success. Well, the explanation of David being this kind of a man is not good character or good breeding or good training or anything else. We're pretty clear that the Bible insists it was the presence in fullness and power of the Spirit of God. I described him, I think, last week as a God-possessed man. I even said, I don't hope it didn't offend you, but I said this was a man who was drunk on God. He wanted the reputation of God more than anything else in his life. He came up against this Philistine, and his, his great thing was not how big is the giant. It was how dare this man defy the Lord our God. And he said to Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That was the theme song of David's life. Now, maybe you've seen on TV these days when troops come home from Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever they might have been in combat and their families gather, their friends gather to welcome them. They, they come on the tarmac in the airport or perhaps get out of a bus and perhaps some folks start up the chant, USA, USA, because they're proud of their troops, rightly so. Well, we're hearing that there was a victory song greeting the army of Saul, but it wasn't one with a universally pleasant reception. Uh, Saul at least didn't hear it that way. It was a little ditty that inflicted psychic damage on Saul as the people sang about the thousands Saul has struck down, but David, tens of thousands. Now, certainly exaggerated, but imagine if you're the king in charge of the army and you hear somebody else being given ten times the credit that you're getting. That was like a worm uh, burrowing into the mind and heart of Saul to burn his heart. He already knew that David was, had conquered uh, 
the friendship of his son, Jonathan. We'll speak about that in weeks to come. He knew that his second daughter, Michael, the younger daughter, was already in love with David. And here are all the people acclaiming him. And Saul begins to think, he's got everything. What else can he have but my kingdom? And so this deep root of jealousy begins to grow and flourish in Saul. You need to see that that David's rise is not credited, as far as I can tell, anywhere in Scripture on based on his character or his good breeding or anything of that sort, or even his talents, and he had talents. His success the whole way is based on the fullness of the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual explanation, and so it is a spiritual explanation that from Saul, the Holy Spirit had departed You know the word from Scripture, Ichabod? It's a strange name. It means the glory has departed. My maternal grandfather used to joke around with us kids, and I don't know why, where he got, I'm sure he wasn't using it in the full biblical sense. He wouldn't have been cruel to us that way, but, but he thought Ichabod was a funny name, I guess, and so sometimes he would greet me and say, hey, Ichabod, how are you? Well, Saul was truly an Ichabod. The glory was departing because the Spirit of God was departing. While David, you could say, was worthy of a similar but extremely different name, Emmanuel. God was with him. Yes, he wasn't Christ, but God was motivating and leading and empowering his life. Well, I'm going to say much more about David, of course, in another day. But for now, I want to spend our remaining time on this dark side of Saul, the dark side, the antitype of salvation. Saul as a desolate soul alone with himself. Now let's face it, some people have a hard time with what 1 Samuel 16, 14 and 18, 10 say as far as talking about a harmful, some translations use the word evil. I think that's not the best translation. Harmful is probably the best translation, and our translation that we read has that. A harmful spirit from God. Somebody wrote on their blue card last Sunday, I don't know if it was from this service or the other, Pastor, what about this verse? And I said, well, I didn't have to call the person up, but I've said in my head, don't worry, the explanation's coming. Uh, What about this strange expression? a harmful spirit from God. That just doesn't sound right. Well, I think one thing to say about it is we insufficiently credit the sovereignty of God over everything, including influences of evil. God is not the author of evil. The Bible doesn't tell us much at all about the authorship of evil, simply about its existence But God is the traffic control officer who governs evil as much as anything else. He holds even Satan himself as a pit bull on on a chain, and he knows how long the chain is. And the Bible implies very clearly that, yes, catastrophic things happen when people make sinful choices, and God allows many many times and ways the, the consequences of bad choices to come upon people, but he governs even over the harmful things that come into our lives. Scripture shows the Holy Spirit granting gifts. We call them gifts of common grace, that is, received by everybody, saved or not. 
And Saul received some of these gifts. You remember, he prophesied. He, he said things that helped and encouraged people from the Lord. But he did that as a recipient of a temporary gift that God gave him to, for a particular reason. It's quite a different matter than when God gives a temporary gift like that and when the Holy Spirit comes and awakens a life, brings new life, brings a person to full trust and full salvation and redemption in Christ, whether that is an Old Testament person anticipating Christ or a New Testament person knowing that Christ has come. The Scripture says, and and clearly the New Testament teaches, that then in that person the Holy Spirit comes and dwells and releases His power to comfort and build up and bring maturity and growth and assurance and all these good things in that life. Ephesians says that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit as we are saved in Christ. The Spirit takes up residence. And we don't have to worry as Christians that the Holy Spirit is going to file with us a notice and say, next month I won't be paying you rent because I won't be here anymore. It's not going to happen. Not when the Holy Spirit redeems a soul. Well, then we put alongside it, and I know that I'm moving pretty quickly this morning on a communion day, but this odd little, I would call it a peculiar parable of Jesus that he told in Matthew 12, 43, about a demon-possessed man, and a demon departs from him for a period of time, and so because the demon is gone, it says his soul is emptied. It's like a household, well-ordered, you know, the furniture's all nicely arranged. It could probably be a a setting in good housekeeping or something. And then the demon returns and says, aha, an empty place. I'm moving back in. And in fact, come on, friends, we're going to have a party and occupy this place. Now, if you wonder what in the world is the point of that little parable, I think it's saying that God intended men and women, ideally before the fall, to be the vessels of His Spirit, to have His Spirit occupy us. But we have had other ideas about that and have decided we would invite other spirits into our lives or just lead an empty life that keeps God away, and yet we can't stay empty. Even the law of physics tells you that. I remember enough from little physics I ever studied that nature abhors a vacuum. It always fills a vacuum. And if God's Spirit is not a tenant in your life, some other spirit will be. And so we have this so-called harmful spirit in the sense in which it is from the Lord means the Lord permitted it. The Lord does not personally employ evil spirits and say, go get that person. But He permits spirits to come and and influences to come in a life that really are nothing but the consequence of the choices that that life is making. It's as if evil finds a chair still warm from a brief visit of the Holy Spirit and says, aha, here's a place for me. I think of a man today, I'm not naming him, but I think of an individual who is well known in the publishing world who attended the premier, we would think, evangelical college of this country 
got a fine PhD from a university, teaches at a university now, and he comes from an evangelical family background, a background that stressed the Word of God and its power and salvation in Christ. And this man today is well known in Book of the Month Club and History Book Club for publishing books that literally rip apart and tell lies about the Word of God and replace it with myths and falsehoods. You think, here's a man who shoved the Holy Spirit out. Now today, a harmful spirit seems to inhabit his life. People like to try to diagnose Saul and what was wrong with him, you know, mental. If you study psychology, maybe say, oh, Saul looks like he's bipolar or manic depressive or severe depression. We certainly had depression. We can see that. I would not venture to try to put that kind of label on him. It was a spiritual problem that was Saul's problem, not simply a psychiatric problem. And this harmful spirit did not originate from God but was permitted by God because it's what Saul desired. And we saw it earlier. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Saul took over the worship, which was not his domain, forbidden to him as king. And he just took over and did it his way. Or he incompletely carried out instructions that the prophet of God had given him and then justified and, and then at the end of the day was saying to Samuel, well, okay, I think I did the wrong thing, but help me look good before the people. Because that's what really mattered the politics and the reputation. When someone begins a spiritual decline like Saul's, it is not losing your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation because God, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, are the author of your salvation. If you've been gripped by that, you cannot lose it. But you can flirt with the things of God. You can have a a passing acquaintance with them, you can move among people for whom they're real and not possess these things. There's a chilling sentence in Genesis 6-3 when God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. It seems like there comes a time when you push the Holy Spirit away enough and he won't return. And we see that to be true in Pharaoh, in Egypt, We see it true in Saul, Cain, Judas. There's some outstanding examples of this in the Scripture. Well, here this morning with time short are a couple practical lessons from our text. First this, that only a new creation of your heart by trusting Jesus as Lord is going to fill the God-shaped vacuum in your life. Don't try to fill it with something else. God still awaits filling that vacuum. He is the father of the prodigal, and he awaits prodigal sons and daughters who would come broken, admitting their pride, admitting their folly, and saying, Father, just give me a place in the barn to sleep. And you know what that prodigal got much better than a place in the barn. You need to come to God through Jesus Christ to find the forgiveness the new life, the peace, the resolution. You know, it's an interesting little side note how Saul was angry at David. The unbeliever was angry at the believer. We could go down a whole road there and develop that today. When God's blessing is in a life, when God's Spirit is in a life, believe me, that creates animosity by those who do not have the Spirit of God. 
Well, secondly, we need to be reminded that people can fake it spiritually quite well. Even preachers can do this. Preachers can preach a good gospel, teach a good lesson, and maybe people are even one to the Lord, and and that man himself is not regenerate. That seems incredible, but it can happen. Paul speculated about its possibility in his epistles once when he said, maybe I would preach and, and be found a castaway. He didn't believe that about himself, but he was saying that possibility would at least be there. Do you realize that the difference between a real Christian and one who's maintaining a facade maybe for years on end is what each person does when he or she is alone. When David was alone, he sought God. He sang God's praises. He spoke about God. He, he praised the honor of God. What did Saul do when he was alone? He schemed and he connived and he stayed awake at night thinking, that guy's getting ahead of me. How can I cut him off and... and turn this back to my own advantage. Completely different. I want to ask you today, which of these two souls does yours more resemble? Remember, David wasn't perfect. In fact, very imperfect. Boldly imperfect. But he fundamentally desired to know the Lord and wanted to surrender his life to the Lord in every way he could. Maybe I'm making somebody uncomfortable because you're saying, you know, that part about a facade, that part about putting on a good act sounds too uncomfortably like me. Well, if you're having that kind of a self-recognition, I'm not happy to cause you pain. But on the other hand, I want to quote something that might help you from a great theologian. He happens to have been a former New York Yankee, but I'll quote him anyway. His name is Yogi Berra great theologian. You know what Yogi Berra said that pertains here? It ain't over till it's over. And I can say that to you today. I could have said that to Saul if he was living before us and said, Saul, for all your spiritual melancholy and raving and abandonment and fear and paranoia, it isn't over till it's over, Saul. You too could still turn to God and repent before him, as David often did. But as far as we know, Saul never did that, right up to the day that he fell on his own sword and died on the battlefield. If you're among us today, feeling like your life too uncomfortably does resemble Saul's, and you're, you're anxious about that, you're unhappy about that, let me give you some good news. You would not be unhappy about that unless the Spirit of God was creating that unhappiness. You see? Because when Saul was far enough gone, he certainly didn't care anymore about the things of God. He didn't worry about not being one of God's people. He was cold and in that desolate dungeon where his soul dwelt apart from God. If you're concerned about it today, I think the Spirit of God is still at work still reminding you, it isn't over till it's over. If you're still breathing, the gate of eternal life is open to you, and the bitterness of Saul's spiritual state does not have to be yours. The dismal separation from God does not have to be yours, because a broken, contrite heart God does not despise. You can call on him today, 
in the saving name of Christ, and he will hear, and he will answer. Our Father, give us true contrition before you. Maybe someone here has really gone far down the road of Saul, and pride and reputation and doing it my way is what matters most. I pray, Lord, that you might break that person down, bring them in humility, to see that your spirit can give a new life, that the cross of Jesus can wipe all things clean, the resurrection of of Christ can bring a new life. I pray that to your honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.